Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Today we have episode 43 of The Full Ratchet, where we're covering life sciences investing with Sergio Garriri. We address questions including the categories within the life sciences category, the typical players that invest in the sector, how the venture investing model differs from that of tech or consumer startups, the key metrics and milestones to monitor at various stages, and ways to reduce risk in this area. Those and a number of other startup investing-related questions. Let's jump right into the interview on life sciences investing. Today we have Sergio Guerreri. He is VP of Due Diligence and Board Director at Tech Coast Angels, and he joins us today to talk life sciences. Sergio, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Nick. So can you start us off with your background and how you became involved in startup investing? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let me say just a couple of words about Tech Coast Angels first for those uh, maybe in the audience that might not be familiar with it. TCA is actually one of the largest and most active angel network in the United States. We have five chapters and over 300 investors, 300 members, all located in Southern California. And we typically invest in companies across a large variety of industries from diagnostics to medical devices, drug discovery, drug development, high tech, software, media, and so forth. San Diego is actually the largest chapter of TCA. We have over 100 members. And as you just said, I'm on the board, VP of due diligence. So just to tell a little bit about my background, how I got started, I consider myself a little bit of a unique kind of angel investor, mostly because my personal motivation and my objectives might be a little bit different from typical angels. And it all kind of started around 2010. So I started reassessing my corporate career in biotech. And for biotech, I mean, not necessarily drug discovery. Usually most people associate biotech with drug discovery. For biotech, in this case, I mean the actual companies developing the core tools and platform technologies for genomics, for proteomics. So you can think about it as all those tools for genetic engineering, for cloning, for PCR, genomic analysis, gene expression, microarrays, sequencing, immunoassays, and so forth. So I did work for three of the large multi-billion dollar biotech corporations, and that would be BD Biosciences. I was with the Clontech a division of BD up in Palo Alto in the early 2000s. Then I moved to Invitrogen here in San Diego, then became Life Technologies around 2008. Now it's Thermo Fisher. And then I worked for a couple of years with Millipore, headquartered in the Boston area, but with an office here in San Diego County. So I really enjoy very much my time with these three large corporations, but I really wanted to start something on my own. I was not really interested in the inevitable politics of these large corporations. So I started making some attempts to turn what I thought were maybe great ideas into strong business plans. And I spent about a year and a half doing market research, doing prototyping, financial modeling, and so forth. And then I started looking at the, some of the statistics and I look at the success rate <laughs> for startups yeah. and they realized that they were not really that good, that strong. I figured out they had to come up with at least 10 good ideas before at least one of them could that being a successful business. My objective was not necessarily that one. I wanted to uh, diversify I, both in terms of time and money. I didn't really want to put all my eggs in one basket. And when you start your own company, diversification is just not an option. It's actually the opposite. Investors want you to focus on maybe even one specific product, one specific market. I didn't want to do that. 
I realized that actually I was much better evaluating and supporting somebody else's business rather than creating one of my own from scratch. So that's exactly why I joined TCA in 2011. My purpose was to build a portfolio startup companies. That's what angel investing is all about. Don't invest in just one or two because your chance of success are actually relatively small. You need to build a portfolio and you're going to be hearing from different angels what the right size for a certain portfolio should be. And in my opinion, based on my personal investment philosophy, my perfect size is around 15 or so. And because less than that, it's really difficult, less than 10 or 12, really difficult to diversify enough. More than 20, they're very difficult to manage. Some investors will say you need to go up to 50 or 100 companies if you invest in early stage. We'll talk about it, but I don't really go early. I try to go as late as I can still within the angel investment category. I kind of want to get your input on this life sciences category because we have not had an investor on the program yet that is specialized here, and it is a very unique sector. There's investors that seem to specialize in this sector specifically, and then many that just avoid it altogether. Sergio, can you first talk about the sector at large and some of the subcomponents within the life sciences category? Yeah. So let me say that I actually have invested mostly in life science companies, even if not exclusively. I have 16 deals so far, and about 60% of them are one way or another in life sciences, but not exclusively. I see life sciences as really three main sectors, drug discovery and development. And they're actually different. Discovery versus development is actually a different deal. And then molecular and clinical diagnostics and medical devices. So the reason why these are typically seen by angel investors as a scary kind of deals, because they fall in the category high risk, high reward. And that means you really need to understand them very well. They can be very capital intensive. Some of these deals, some of these companies might need 10 or 50 or even $100 million to take the company all the way to an exit. So what that means is that financing risk is very high because, of course, angels are not going to be able to raise that kind of money. An additional risk component, which is regulatory risk, and that you don't see, of course, on the high-tech side. So from a drug discovery and development perspective, that is the highest risk category. But that means, of course, the, where you're going to probably see the highest reward if the company is successful. If you heard any of the presentation by TCA, we used to say, and we still do sometimes, one of the bullet points would be angels don't do drugs. And the reason is actually very simple because it takes really long time, again, very capital intensive and long time to exit. However, we make exceptions and we do invest in drug discovery, drug development companies, but under certain special circumstances, maybe niche markets are good, orphan drugs, what they're called orphan drugs. So addressing maybe a relatively small population of less than 200,000 patients or so. Reformulated drugs are also good, repurposed drugs. So... Not necessarily, again, new drugs, but maybe old drugs for new indications, maybe new delivery mechanisms. So again, an existing drug, but delivered in a different way. So we do have quite a few companies that are really strong in our portfolio. So that's the drug discovery, drug development. The molecular clinical diagnostics, then I would say that this may be a little bit lower risk still high risk, but maybe more moderate because the path for approval, regulatory approval is much more clear. Devices are probably the lowest in terms of risk. A lot of angels actually prefer to invest in devices if they invest in life sciences. And the reason is especially for non-invasive devices. And for non-invasive, I mean all the external monitoring systems, they're relatively low risk. I'm not talking about the implants or maybe knee replacements or hip replacements. Those more invasive implants, of course, they have much more regulatory scrutiny. But the external devices, the monitoring devices, they have a much more straightforward path to approval and therefore seen as relatively low risk. However, most of the time when we we talk about life sciences, typically we mean drug discovery and development. So I'm assuming we'll probably focus on those kind of companies today. And with your existing portfolio, what's sort of the breakdown in the three major categories? I have about five in uh, the drug discovery development companies, one in diagnostics and two medical devices. So again, I'm not a typical angel, meaning I try to look for the real late stage deals still within the angel investment category. So I don't go really early at the discovery phase or at the concept phase. The companies I have invested in, they're already really, really close to the clinics or already in phase one or even phase two clinical trials. Gotcha. So what 
series of investment would you classify that at? And what sort of valuation ranges are you in at that point? Most angels like valuations in the range one to four million dollars. Anytime a company comes in with a valuation higher than four, might become a deal breaker. Most people start dropping off. When you start talking about six or eight or 10, few brave <laughs> angels, they might be interested in that category. And maybe I'm one of them. Once you start talking about 20, 30, then you're probably losing 90% of the audience. I would say my sweet spot is probably between 4 and 10 or 12. That would be the best time that I like to go in. However, I like following these companies along the way, you know, the course of a year or two, and then eventually do follow-on rounds. And I think that's actually a trend. We used to invest just one time only, really early stage, and kind of wait and see what happens. Now we're more supportive of our portfolio companies and we go back and invest in follow-on rounds and maybe a second time, a third time, even a fourth time over the course of a couple of years. You were talking about what kind of round, whether it's a Series A or Series B. Those definitions are kind of subjective, you know, but I would say most of them are, the ones I like are actually Series B rounds. If I'm allowed to get in or somehow the company it's still at the stage where it has not really taken off in terms of valuation, but it's getting really, really close to the market, to commercialization. So I like those kind of companies that are probably close to 10 or $12 million in terms of pre-money. Instead of calling that a Series B, it would be companies that are maybe in uh, stage one of clinical trials? Yeah, you can say that. Though you can say maybe second or third round of financing, not necessarily the early seed state, the very first time they start raising funds. The mix of players that provide capital in this area is a bit different than your traditional angels and micro VCs. Can you talk about some of the players that are investing and providing capital in the life sciences area, aside from just angels? Well, angels are actually very, very predominant. And if you look at statistics, angels are investing in startup companies pretty much about the same amount of money that VCs will invest. It's about $20, $22 billion a year. And the only difference is that VCs, of course, will write much larger checks for a small number of companies. Angels will write much larger number of checks, but they're small checks. The typical angel investment is about $25,000. So that, that would be the standard. If you ask somebody whether he have invested, that person has invested in a company, you can assume that that investment was somewhere in the range of 25000 maybe twenty, maybe 30 maybe 50 But what I would say is that angels are getting really good at syndicating together. We work with all the most active angel groups across the country. There are some very active in, in the Boston area from Mass Medical Angels, the Boston Harbor Angels, Cherry Stones in, in Providence, Rhode Island. Desert Angels in Tucson, Arizona, they're really, really active, especially in 2014. Yep. Arizona Tech Investors, Houston Angels, also Central Texas Angel Network in Austin, Texas. They're really active. We have co-invested in a company and it's working well. So angels are moving maybe even later stages and raising a lot more money than, than we used to by syndication. However, angels is not just the only option. There are, you need to connect with your investors. I think that's what really matters, especially in life sciences. You want your shareholders to have a personal connection with the company. Some family funds might work really well because they might have a history of a particular disease in the family. Philanthropic funds work really well. There are incubators that actually focus on certain areas based on the expertise of the managing directors. And of course, there are the small or medium VC funds or the micro VC funds. They are probably in the 2 to $10 million range. So they're really small funds that will write you a $200,000 checks. But the benefit of getting those funds involved is that they have, most of the times, they have good connections with the larger VCs. So if the company needs follow-on financing, then it's much easier step to go to the next round. Have you found a lot of internal venture arms that are associated maybe with a biotech company that you've worked with? So there is a little bit of a gap. That is, and you probably heard about that, the fact that the angels can support companies up to a certain stage. And again, the first couple of million dollars, maybe five, in some cases, even 10 or 15. But that, that's about as far as you can stretch financing round, especially when you start involving a large number of angel groups. But it takes a lot of time going and pitching to three, four, five, 10, 15 different angel groups and getting them involved in the round. It's just very time consuming for management. 
So you want management to really focus on building the company, building the business, not necessarily just raising funds. And again, going back to the original concept, the typical check for an angel investor is $25,000. So if a company needs to raise, let's say, a million dollars, well, we'll need to convince about 40 investors to write a check. If the company needs $2 million, then you're talking about eight investors and so forth. So when you start discussing rounds that are in three to $5 million range, they are possible through angel syndicate, but they're very, very time consuming. And VCs are actually going to later and later stages. They really want to see proof of concept. They really want to see market traction. There is still a gap. And that's why I think the smaller fund, the family fund, the philanthropic funds, I think they can play a strong role there because they might be in that position to either fill the gap or at least to support the company through that period. It might be a little bit difficult to get VC funding. So we'd worked some, but there is a little bit of disconnect because VCs are moving to later stages and angels are also moving to later stages, but there is still a gap. So the gap is moving to maybe the $5 million raise. It's just very difficult with angels. Not impossible, but it doesn't happen every day. But it's, it might be not enough for VCs, especially if the company is not in the market, doesn't have revenues, doesn't have customers and so forth. Can you talk about at a very high level why the startup investing model is so different in the life sciences category than it would be for, let's say, a software company or a B2C app company? Yeah, they're very different because technologies are biotech or high tech. <laughs> they're very different kind of beasts. On the high tech side, especially if you're developing an app, it's mostly adoption and market penetration and how quickly you can grow your user base and how quickly you can acquire customers for very little money. So it's a very different kind of concept. On the life science side, it's not really about the market. The market is very well defined, very well established. It's really about is the product you're trying to develop, is it going to work? Because these technologies are very complex. There are so many things that could go wrong and many of them will go wrong. So it takes a lot of years to develop a drug. It could be 10 or 12 years in some cases if you start really early. Again, very capital intensive. So it could be tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Starting from scratch, it takes about actually $1.2 billion to take a drug all the way to market. The angel back company, they will never take a drug to market. It's really rare that the company will take the drug all the way to market. They will try to sell before. But still, you will need tens of millions of dollars. So financing risk is very high, longer development time, longer time to exit. There are some positives. So otherwise, why we even bother? So intellectually and morally, it's very rewarding because you get to actually deliver real benefits to the healthcare system and to patients because most of the times you're working directly with patients and the people are just phenomenal. But it's not charity. They want to do something good, but at the end of the day, they still expect some kind of return investment. So the reason why we do that, because once you develop something that actually works, barriers to entry are really, really high. That means it's very difficult for somebody else to catch up with you if you're two or three years ahead. And again, it's very expensive for them as well, and they might not even be competitive enough. Market risk, from my perspective, is much lower because, again, once you develop your product, then you're going to be able to enter your market and be successful. And especially if you decide to go after niche markets, you can completely dominate those markets. And at the end of the day, if you end up being lucky and you end up developing a blockbuster or some drug that will cure cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, then the ROI could be really large. And you're talking about 100x or plus. But of course, again, you need to get there. So not easy. There is interest. There is a lot of activity and uh, because the rewards can be really high. So it really depends on the investment philosophy. Some individuals prefer to go, again, low risk, low reward. Some others prefer to go high risk, high reward. And depends on why they're investing in angel-backed companies. Some people want to diversify. They might have invested already in art, in real estate, in gold. So angel investing is really, for them, high risk, high reward. For some other people like me, I would say I'm more conservative or my risk tolerance is more moderate. That's why I try to go as late as I can. I'm not going after the 100x returns. I'll be fine with the 5 or 6 or 10x, but I want to make sure I get my money back. Some angels would say it's not about return on investment. It's about return of investment. I want to make sure I get my money back before <laughs> I worry about what profit I'm going to make. Usually we get all excited about the potential profit. We don't think too much about the chance of losing money. It's high. 
And if you don't build a portfolio, if you don't screen and evaluate these companies properly, if you don't do proper diligence and so forth. Sure. Sergio, can you talk a little bit about the role of regulatory and how do you assess risk when evaluating a life sciences deal with regards to regulatory? Well, so that is the toughest part. And yeah, that's really the main reason why a lot of angels walk away from life science companies. It's actually very simple. It's not because the risk is necessarily really high. It's just they don't understand it well. So regulatory is probably the biggest problem in life sciences for a lot of different reasons. First, especially for drug discovery, drug development, you need to have multiple approval steps with the FDA. If you're developing a drug, if you're setting up, for example, a diagnostic lab, maybe you need to go through a clear certification process. So that means you need to develop processes to assure quality in your laboratory testing. You need to have standard protocols, operating procedures, and so forth. This could be very time-consuming. And then there is no guarantee about the outcome, right? So the way you protect yourself about this kind of risk is simply you need to have a strong management, a strong board that really understand these processes, that have the connections with all the regulatory agencies that has done this before that can actually really well manage the risk because there is risk, but it's not, I mean, nothing in angel investing is without risk. It's all about understanding what risk is and managing it from a company perspective as well as from an investor perspective. So the biggest, most important point is watch for your budget because you never know, raise money when you might not need it because you will need it at some point in a way that is completely unexpected and how much money you spend because you're most likely you're going to need more because they might ask you to do run even more experiments, more safety studies, more toxicology studies, more data with mice and rats. And then you might need to go back and raise more funds and do those studies before DA will allow you to go to the next level. Bottom line is always want to raise money when you don't need it. <laughs> and the companies that have invested in it so far have been successful is because they have adopted exactly that philosophy because it's very much unknown. But it's not that in, at the end of the day, the company will make it. It just will take a little bit longer. It will take a little more money. But if you have, again, a strong product or a strong platform, it's just a matter of time, but it will work out. We probably don't have time to address this next question for each of the three major components of life sciences, but maybe you can address this at a high level for us. We recently had Mamoun Hamid on the program to talk SaaS and investing in SaaS companies, and he highlighted some of the key metrics that they look for and they measure both pre-investment and post, MRRs and quick ratios. Are there some key data points, metrics, and or milestones that are critical to evaluate when you're looking at a startup for investment and then data points that you look to measure for portfolio companies? So there are no real hardcore metrics. The major milestones as far as life science companies, they're typically regulatory approval. As I was saying, multiple steps of approval with FDA, clear certification process. But really the most important at the end of the day, what we want to see, what we see is we want to see is what we call clinical validation or proof of concept. But the reality with the life science companies, the proof of concept means does this drug or does this device work in humans? (laughs) (laughs) And so there is no such a thing as like an early prototype that you can say, well, I'll develop something done in my garage and see if it works. And then if it works, then I'll do something better. I'll try to scale it. (laughs) When you develop a drug, you really need to develop the final product. Even if we do do all the testing, maybe early testing in mice and rats, all the preclinical data, translate very well into humans because, of course, the physiology is very different. And actually, so how can we expect the data from rats to actually be similar, the response in humans being similar, when actually a rat is not even a big mouse? And the physiological rat is very different from a mouse. So how can we expect that information to actually translate into humans? Most of the times it doesn't translate very well. The reality is that you really need to develop the full product before it can be tested in humans and including maybe manufacturing needs to be fully scalable. But these are the things that we typically look for and those are the major milestones. Again, regulatory approval as well as clinical validation step or some kind of preclinical data that maybe even there are companies, even TCA portfolio companies that are working with uh, human tissues preclinically. So the data they produce is going to be much more predictive of the clinical outcome. So we look for those kind of indications of uh, clinical validation and then those milestones are obviously associated with those particular 
result. But nothing that we can measure like a cost per click or conversion rates or things <laughs> like that. <laughs> so it's an art, really drug development is an yeah. art. You need to be able to, again, assess the risk and have a plan B in case your plan A doesn't work and then be able to anticipate when a rainy day is going to come before it, it actually rains because it will rain. You just don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to work for an analytical device company. It wasn't yeah. medical, it was environmental that tested a, a variety of parameters in water. And while the EPA asked for a lot of specific data, a lot of third-party testing, I found the entire regulatory process to be much more of an art and much yes. more of a relationship that than it was a science, which was almost yes. confounding to me. That is exactly what I was going to say. It's almost a little bit like the relationship with IRS or maybe even with the, I don't know, Border Patrol or those kind of <laughs> entities, right? Where, you know, they look scary from the outside, but the reality, they're really trying to help you. So if you have relationships with FDA personnel, they're really, really nice people. They are trying to help. They just don't have necessarily all the tools in place. They don't have necessarily the bandwidth because, of course, there are so many companies, yep. so many drugs, and so much work, so much data that needs to be developed. So if you have those relationships, if you understand well their process, their concerns, so that's why it boils down to a really strong experienced management team as well as because the board can avoid you from making really... <laughs> <laughs> bad mistakes early in the process. And of course, that would mean run of cash and maybe not being able to raise more cash and that might be the end of the company. On the bandwidth side, if I could make a suggestion to the audience, if you're investing in life sciences or anything with high degree of regulatory approval, do not put all your eggs in one basket the timing and the schedule that you get from the regulatory agency because those schedules tend to move back. Yeah, exactly. Assume that meetings that you have scheduled might end up being pushed back by a month or two. Assume they will take a little bit more cash to get to a certain point. Assume that they will ask you for more data. That means more work. So I have always some cash reserve for those rainy days because they will happen. Speaking of rainy days, startup investing itself is a very risky asset class. And life sciences as a category in the startup investing world is exceptionally risky. Sergio, do you have any thoughts on ways that life sciences startups can reduce risk at these early stages? Yeah. So, of course, if you want to reduce risk, then you're going to be reducing also your potential ROI. I mean, because they, of course, go hand in hand. And that's part of the reason why I try to go as late as I can. Still, again, being early stage, but not really early. So, as I was mentioning before, it's really important to have seasoned management and board, not just the board of directors, but also advisory boards, maybe clinical advisory boards, as well as business advisory boards. But get on your board of directors somebody who is, if you don't have the, you know, the expertise yourself or in the team, well, get a really strong management team first. Yep. And the only way to get that first is to actually have individuals that are key in that process as co-founders. So a lot of entrepreneurs, they feel like, well, they had a great idea and because they had a great idea, they're going to be making a lot of money. But that doesn't happen. The reality is that they might be very smart scientists. And I thought at some point I was one of them. And as I was mentioning at the beginning, it's really, really difficult to convert a really great scientific idea into a business because there are a lot of other pieces of the puzzle. So the product or the idea itself, maybe it's worth only 5%. So you need to have really strong co-founders. You need to have the collective skills in the management to be able to advance the company. But again, you need to surround yourself with a very strong board because just one simple mistake or one bad decision can actually kill the company. If you're not very clear on the target market or course of action, whether you're going to develop a drug according to certain criteria or others, that might be too late. By the time you realize it was a mistake, it might be too late. But I would say in terms of advice, I would say typically if you want to lower risk, then you need to avoid anything that is new, whether we're talking about a new chemical molecule or maybe a new biological target or a new mechanism of action. Anything that is unknown means additional risk. So I like to focus on those companies that actually, they're still innovative, they're still very good, they're still very strong, but they're not starting from scratch. So, and I'm talking about, I mentioned before, reformulated drugs. So reformulated means, for example, you have a drug that today is uh, administered intravenously, so by IV. Well, they might not be necessarily the best way of delivering the drug, 
from a medical perspective. So you might work on an oral delivery. You might work on a powder form. Maybe an antibiotic can be inhaled and go straight into the lungs where the, the infection is. So a different formulation of a drug that's already been on the market for many years, that the safety profile is very well defined and so forth. Another category of drugs that I like are repurposed drugs. For example, drugs that are in the market in other countries or, or maybe for other indications. And now they can be new trials can be run for a different indication. And of course, the safety profile of the drug is already well known. So there is much lower risk. Interesting. And again, better delivery mechanism. So for example, some drug cannot be delivered orally and orally just taking a pill is just the easiest way to deliver a drug, but that is not necessarily the best way of doing it. So if you can figure out a better way to deliver a drug or maybe avoid some spikes in concentration of the drug, or maybe avoid the daily dose, get the drug once that over time has a very clear release profile so that you might take your drug only once a week or once a month or even once a year for certain indications. So I would rather work with those kind of companies. And if you really want to do something new, focus maybe on niche markets. I was talking before about orphan drugs. Again, those drugs that are developed for maybe rare diseases affecting only maybe 10,000, 100,000 patients or so. So the cost of development Actually, it's not that it's cheaper. It's probably about the same. And sometimes it might not even be as good as the market opportunity. However, the FDA gives a lot of incentives, not only much faster processing, but also there is market exclusivity. So in the U.S. would be seven years, 10 years in Europe of exclusivity if you develop an orphan drug. And these timelines can be even extended. The drug has applications in pediatric patients. Again, if you want to moderate the risk, then avoid things that are either large <laughs> or new. Don't look for the next blockbuster, but just kind of focus on something smaller, more manageable with a much more reasonable budget. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. You've talked about some of the sub-segments that you're focusing on, but can you also talk about how life sciences is evolving and where you see it going within the next decade? And also if there's significant opportunities that you see on the horizon within this life sciences sector. Yeah, so I was mentioning, for example, orphan drugs, that they are becoming like a hot topic. A lot of companies are going into that space. And the reason is because there are benefits from a regulatory perspective as well as from a market perspective. What we are seeing, at least at TCA, we have seen quite a few companies in the gene therapy space or regenerative medicine space. One really, really strong company is called Retrosense and actually was awarded the, the Louis Villalobos Award at the Angel Capital Association Summit here in San Diego only a few weeks ago. It's a company, gene therapy is becoming really hot. There are only few drugs that are in the market. And because, again, there is a lot to be proven yet, but the potential is phenomenal. So Retrosense is developing an actual therapy to restore vision in blind patients affected by diseases called retinitis pigmentosa. So it's basically a condition of the retina, which uh, over time results in the degradation of the retinal tissue and consequent loss of vision. Delivering a specific gene that is photosensitive, Retrosense can actually restore vision in cells that are still intact. Wow. And so that's phenomenal. Again, we'll take time, but eventually gene therapy will become more predominant in terms of way of delivering certain type of therapy. 
regenerative medicine, stem cell therapy, they are also very interesting. We've been working with a company here in San Diego called CardioCreate. They are developing a combination therapy between gene therapy and stem cell therapy. Their goal is to actually regenerate uh, heart tissue that has been damaged during a heart attack so they can actually regenerate that tissue that is dead. So that's phenomenal as well. And again, it's just the early stages, but eventually they will make it. It just will take capital, will take time, will take another five or 10 years before these therapies will start becoming more standard, will get even more visibility. But there are already a very large number of companies that are very active in the space. I see a lot of activities in the next-gen sequencing. Probably the first time human genome was fully sequenced was less than 10 years ago. It took about 13 years to sequence one single human genome, and the cost was $3 billion. Today, $3 billion in 13 years for one genome. Today, we can do exactly the same kind of work in about a day and for the cost of about $1,000. There are a lot of companies starting up. The way technologies are evolving it just and the speed is just phenomenal. There are a lot of companies in the genome sequencing space that they're developing either sequencing technologies themselves or, which is even more important, even sometimes even more time-consuming, is the data processing and analysis of these genomes because you produce so much data. Downstream processing is much more intense, much more time-consuming than the analysis itself. And then you have a lot of applications, starting from personalized medicine to diagnostics, developing new therapeutic approaches and so forth. So genome sequencing has definitely been a hot space in the last few years, and I would predict that it will just keep being more attractive as well. So the advice that I would give is that, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, all these are really complex technologies, especially if you're not in the space. Keep in mind that angel investors, the audience, the population of angel investors is very heterogeneous. You have a small number of individuals that have expertise in life sciences, but you have a lot uh, more people with expertise in high tech, in real estate, and in finance. And those individuals are still interested in life sciences. They just don't necessarily understand the space. Uh, because these technologies are, are complex, uh, the only way to minimize actually real risk is the, to understand. You can't really minimize the actual risk, but you need to understand really well. Be prepared to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours in diligence, and especially technical and IP due diligence, because in some of these spaces could be very crowded. Some of them could be very unique and very strong. You, you can have a dominant position in those spaces, in those areas. But again, I'm responsible for due diligence. I tend maybe to spend more time than uh, most people. And again, it could be 100, uh, 200, 300, 400 hours before I make a decision for certain company. And it's not just by myself. So we go through that. It's really the benefit of, uh, of investing as part of a large uh, angel organization. Sergio, can you talk about what you're currently most focused on over at Tech Coast Angels? Well, I spent probably very intensive the last years with the diagnostic company here in San Diego. I'm on the board of Pediatric Bioscience. It's a diagnostic TCA portfolio company. They're developing a, an early diagnostic test for autism. As you know, autism is really, really difficult to diagnose. Typically, diagnosis happens based on behavior by age four or five. And by the time, it's really difficult to have any real effect. And the behavioral intervention is not, again, not very effective. This company has tried to develop a really early diagnostic test, and actually they're testing the mother, not necessarily even the son. They had demonstrated that the largest subtype of autism is actually caused by some antibodies in the mother. They will cross the placenta during pregnancy and might cause defects in the brain development of the child. The company is basically based on science coming from UC Davis. We've been able to raise uh, about three $3 million over the last 15 months or so, and they're doing really well. They're getting ready to commercialize their test, they're ready for launch by the end of the year. So it's been very intensive. It's been very rewarding as well. We have built a really large syndicate for this effort. Not only TCA have invested, Pasadena Angels, Golden Seeds, Chemical Angel Network, oh, Mass wow. Medical Angels. We're really pushing, many of us, and pushing in terms of making sure the company is solid, the company is strong, the company is well-funded. It's going well, but it takes a lot of time. And again, as I said before, it's not just management. They can't do it by themselves. They need the, all the help that they can get from their board, 
advisors as well as shareholders. So we try to contribute and to support our company as much as we can. And hopefully things will go the way they're planned to. But so far, all the indications are positive. Crossing our fingers for launch by the end of the year. Yeah, my very first professional job, I was a biomedical analyst studying autism. I'm curious, is this startup focused on the diagnosis side or the treatment side? So at this point, they're focusing on the diagnosis. And if this subtype of autism really ends up being the most predominant and as uh, abundant or as common as they believe it is right now, eventually, based on the mechanism of action, they will be able to develop uh, therapeutic solutions. And they have, of course, the IP from UC Davis, both for diagnostic applications as well as therapeutic applications, because you can potentially block these antibodies either block them from binding, from crossing the placenta, and develop drugs around that. Wow. A lot of TCA, I can tell a lot of TCA members that have invested, actually, they're even more interested in the therapeutic application, not just the diagnostics. But having the combination would be really exceptional. If we could combine diagnostic tool with the therapeutic approach, that would be really the best. I'm really excited to hear that you invested in this company and you partnered with so many other angel groups. And I I really hope for the best for them and for their ability to help those that are suffering with autism. But Sergio, if we could cover any topic in venture investing, what do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? A lot of angels, they tend to get excited about the companies they invest in and especially the first few investments, they don't necessarily worry too much about exit. But then very soon, and maybe I was one of them at my early days, I think it would be nice to hear about how do you really proper position a company for an exit. And maybe you don't want to put a sales sign right outside saying, I'm trying to sell the company. Keep building your company, really try to build. And, and then by the same time, you want to be positioned for, for an acquisition anytime the opportunity comes along. And should you engage an investment banker? Maybe not. I heard the, you know, kind of conflicting opinions about that. IPO, sometimes you hear all this presentation where say, well, we can exit by acquisition or we'll go IPO. Well, there are dangers in going IPO <laughs> because you see companies that they are all excited. They can raise maybe 80 or $100 million in IPO and then the stock goes down and down and down. And of course, you know that as angel investors, we're locked from selling our shares for a certain number of months. Yep. It would be nice to actually define how you would structure an exit, how you would get ready for it, how you would actually build a company in preparation for an exit. And of course, there are a few individuals here in San Diego that are very strong and experienced. For example, Cam Garner, you know, he's probably very busy, but he's been the chairman of multiple pharma companies or drug development companies, including one was called Elevation Pharmaceuticals. They sold the company in 2012. $430 million, so it was a phenomenal exit. I think he's probably the most successful life science entrepreneur in San Diego. He's uh, co-founded many specialty pharmaceutical companies and had a very large number of exits. Bill Gerhardt is, uh, was the CEO of Elevation Pharmaceuticals, so it would be nice to hear the story from either one of them, if possible. But of course, they're busy individuals, so it's going to be hard to get a hold of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent suggestion. Certainly, if I if I can't get one of them, then getting someone like a Basil Peters or a John Houston on the show to mm. talk about exits would be. So, yes. Sergio, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Oh, well, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. That would probably be the easiest way. I'll give you my email if you can spell my last name. <laughs> 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 That's going to be the hardest part. There are a lot of R's, a lot of I's. So I'll give it to you. It's uh, S-E-R-G-I-O, which is my first name, and my last name, G-U-R-R-I-E-R-I. So G-U-R-R-I-E-R-I at gmail.com. Sergio Gurrieri at gmail.com. If you can't spell it right or, you know, for some reason you don't find me or you get an error message, then you'll find me on, on LinkedIn. But I would suggest write a note. I mean, mention this podcast to make sure that I will pay attention to it and, and definitely reply. <laughs> I thought you were quizzing me on how to spell your name there, Sergio. That's the biggest challenge, to spell my last name with the right number of R's and I's and E's. And definitely, I would encourage everybody listening to have a look at our website, techhotangels.com. There are a lot of resources, a lot of templates, a lot of guidelines, and for both angels as well as for entrepreneurs. And for angels, we say, don't be in a rush writing your first check. Just come in as a guest. We'll be happy to walk you through our process. We'll be happy to invite you to our screening dinner events. 
And even if you join as a member, just spend the first few months just watching and interacting with people who've been around for, for a few years because there is a lot to learn. It takes about a year and a half or two to actually get comfortable, define very well your investment philosophy, your specific niche. And so it takes a while. So nobody can resist that temptation. Within a couple of months, we all write our first check because that's how it works. But try to be, don't, don't rush if you can. Just not resist that temptation because you're not going to be able to, but don't try to somehow manage it. Yeah, the uh, tagline for yeah. the show is over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest like, confidently. <laughs> exactly. It's very addictive. I can <laughs> yeah. tell you that. Once you get started, it's a nice feeling again. It's all, all rounded. It's very rewarding intellectually, professionally. You get to meet a lot of really phenomenal people. And it's never boring because it's just you go from one topic to next. And of course, you end up focusing on companies or areas that you're most of the times personally interested in. So it's good to do a lot of reading, to do a lot of education around topics of today is that most of the times to have a regular standard job, we simply don't have time to catch up with. Well, if you're in Southern California, you're interested in due diligence process, or if you just want to learn more about life sciences investing, I can't think of a more knowledgeable and gracious person than Sergio here. So thanks for joining us on the show today, Sergio, and look forward to reconnecting with you when I'm out in your area. All right. Thank you very much, Nick. I really enjoyed it. Awesome interview there with Sergio. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is the three categories within life sciences. Number one was drug discovery and drug development. Sergio listed this as the highest risk, but also the highest reward category within the group. Number two was molecular and clinical diagnostics. This one had a more medium risk profile relative to the others. And finally, number three included medical devices. This one is lower risk relative to the other two categories. Key takeaway number two is why life sciences is so risky. So first, Sergio talked about how the sector is very capital intensive. Starting from scratch, it takes about $1.2 billion to take a drug all the way through to market. The second point on why it's so risky is that it's very long to get an exit. Sergio mentioned that even if a company can move very quickly, it still takes 10 to 12 years to get a drug to market. The next point was about how there are significant clinical testing hurdles. Recall that Sergio cited how testing results of drugs on other species rarely transfers to humans. And finally, regulatory approval. So even if a drug gets through clinical trials, there is still a challenging path to get all the third-party testing and data in order to get the approvals required. And the two critical milestones that investors often look for in this category include regulatory approval as well as clinical validation, which in Sergio's mind is essentially proof of concept. Does the drug or device work in humans? Okay, the third and final takeaway is ways that Sergio reduces risk and uncertainty in life sciences. The first point he made here was on investing later. If the startup can get through some of those critical clinical or regulatory hurdles prior to investment, it reduces the risk profile significantly. The second thing that Sergio does is he avoids new drugs. So instead of looking at totally unknown formulations, he can look at new formulations or existing compounds or treatments. The third item he mentioned was new delivery mechanisms. So Sergio had cited that an existing method of delivery may be intravenous, for example, and he may look for oral applications or inhalation that delivers the drug through the respiratory system. The fourth way to reduce risk had to do with repurposing drugs. These may be in other geographies or may be used to treat other disorders, but maybe have been found to be useful in new areas, treating different disorders. And finally, the last point that Sergio made on reducing risk had to do with orphan drugs. Remember that these had to do with disorders that may affect populations less than 200,000. While the market size may be lower, this reduces risk in the development process because the FDA gives market exclusivity for seven years in the U.S., and also provides faster processing. Okay, let's wrap up with our tip of the week, and this week's tip is the power of want. With all this talk on drugs today, it got me thinking about why consumers buy and reminded me of previous discussions on the vitamin pill versus the painkiller. 
And needs in general have been studied at length with lots of good material out there, including Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But today I want to look at it a little differently and talk about rational desires, i.e. needs, versus irrational desires, i.e. wants, and how purchase motivation can vary widely between the two. We spent a lot of time on the rational and logical needs. These are often reducing frustration, pain, time, expenses. They are logical needs and typically work well for buyers that are focused on efficiency, speed, and cost, which is why products and services with this focus work so well for enterprise B2B customers. And many investors focus on startups addressing large pain points because it's very reasonable to assume that the target market will purchase something that is solving their most painful problem. But the fault in our logic is the assumption that people are rational, when in fact, the only certainty is that people are irrational. This category of irrational desires is more nuanced, but maybe even more powerful. It includes the things that people do not need, but they really want. These could be physiological, sensory, emotional, self-esteem related, addiction related, etc. The fact is that we are humans and the majority of the time we don't make the most logical decision. When one is feeling stressed or down, do they always make a positive choice like going to exercise? No. People often make less healthy choices with more immediate gratification. When ordering food, do we always choose the healthiest option on the menu? I'd argue that the majority of the time we do not. So this isn't meant to be a lesson on how to make better decisions. More of just an acknowledgement that want is very powerful. When people see something they want because it fulfills an irrational desire, it can drive purchase decisions even more so than a pain point. A decent example of the intersection between wants and needs is Nest. On a recent episode of the podcast, The Pitch... I reviewed a company called Flare, which is in the Internet of Things home automation space. The founder had mentioned something interesting about Nest, that its fundamental function and value is to adjust temperature in a living space to save energy. Yet, the real reason why many people buy Nest is to have a cool-looking thermostat on their wall, maybe as a conversation piece. So while the rational need may be to save money... The main reason people are buying is to show it off to their friends. It is tremendously hard to predict people's irrational desires. And even post-purchase, consumers will often justify a purchase as a rational need when really, in fact, it was based on impulse or desire. Are Nest buyers ever going to admit that they purchased it to show off? Probably not. But the underlying motivations are there and the investor that has an appreciation for what people want as well as what they need will look at startups through a whole new lens. That'll wrap up today's show. All notes and links will be included in the show notes at fullratchet.net. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.